This episode was recorded on the land of the Ngunnawal people. Welcome to Teacher Insights from Catalyst, the podcast that explores the science of learning and its practical implementation in the classrooms of Catholic Education, Canberra Goulburn. I'm your host, Luke Mooney, and in each episode, we'll hear from teachers and leaders who are leading the way in implementing evidence-based teaching practice. Today, I chat with primary school teacher, Amy Raster. I have had the opportunity to observe Amy teach, and it's absolutely amazing to see how she engages her students throughout her lessons. In particular, our chat today will focus on engagement and behavior norms and classroom routines. It is obvious that there has been explicit teaching about classroom and lesson behaviors in her year two classroom, as her students know exactly what to do and how to stay engaged throughout her explicit lessons and daily reviews. Today, Amy will share with us some of her practices and secrets that lead to such excellent student engagement results and in turn, high academic achievement. Welcome, Amy. Hi, Luke, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to discuss all of these wonderful things today. It's a pleasure, thank you for being here. Amy, to start with, as active participation is the key to explicit teaching, what do you aim to achieve each lesson? Well, when I think about active participation, essentially I think about every teacher's aim is to be an effective teacher, which means hopefully students are actively participating and then in turn, they're expanding their depth of knowledge and understanding. I think no matter what teacher you are, that is your goal. So the great thing about explicit teaching is that it's literally a one-way ticket to achieving this. So having all children give you their attention and respect is rewarding in itself. And that is really easily achieved through explicit teaching, which is why I love it so much. Um, So thinking about what I aim to achieve each lesson, I would say I have six main goals that I like to tick off my list. Um, And the first one is that in each explicit lesson or daily review, I need to provide a high level of active practice from students to keep them engaged, to ensure there is active participation. Um, And in order to do this, that means I need to make sure that the content is easily accessible to the children. So um, this is actually really easily achieved through explicit teaching. As I like to say, it is a no failure proof way of teaching, which means all ability levels are catered for and no child is left behind either blankly staring into space, having no idea what is going on or the opposite, or it's too easy and they're completely bored. So the structure of an explicit lesson is great for this because you work in small steps to ensure that those two things, blankly staring into space or completely bored, don't happen. Um, And I like to say it is no failure, and I like to use that term with parents as well when we're discussing our explicit teaching strategies because Although you are teaching all students the same content, there is multiple entry points. So when a child is asked to independently show their learning, I might have given them a time frame to do this. Uh, Those lower level children have the ability to say write two words if that's what you're asking them to respond with, whereas those children on the higher end of the scale can give multiple words in that set time frame. Um, 
And then obviously the no failure comes from you would never ask a child to just show you something that they haven't just learned. So following the structure of I do, we do, you and your partner do, and you do. And then in nine times out of 10, um, part of the answer or some of the answer is still on the board. So it completely takes away that anxiety of, oh my goodness, what has my teacher just asked me to do? So I'm think I'm hearing that um, the way we're starting off your lessons or that you would never do, you'd never ask a question, a question that you haven't sort of taught before. And so that might've been a change you've had to make in your teaching to move to this style of pedagogy? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So in the past, and I haven't been a teacher for a huge amount of time, but I also haven't been a teacher for a short time. But, you know, so often you would have, no matter what curriculum content you were teaching, you would start your lesson by saying, great. Okay. So who remembers what we discussed last lesson about so-and-so? And you get children, just some children blankly looking at you and you get those same consistent children putting up their hand who remember. So with explicit teaching, you would never ask that first, which has been a strategy that is actually pleasant to move away from because the results speak for themselves. Um, Yeah, so you'd never ask a question. It's, I'm going to teach the content first and then we are going to do it together. Then you and your partner will have a turn of doing it together and then finally independent tasks. So it completely eliminates that I have no idea what I'm doing right now. It must be a more efficient way to to um, portray the content that you'd like to teach as well. Oh, absolutely. And not only that, you're reinforcing previous learning as well. So um, efficiency wise, you're not and also you're just you're not sitting there with having all these children look at you and you as a teacher going, oh, gosh, they have no idea what we we're talking about yesterday. You know, feeling like yeah, almost like what was the point of that lesson? What other things are you looking for for active participation? So my next goal would be to ask a large number of questions and check for understandings. So the aim overall is to get quality oral and written responses and the evidence shows this so that a high success rate during guided practice also leads to a higher success rate when students are working on independent problems. Um, And the easiest way to achieve this is to ensure that I'm teaching in small steps, but also providing sufficient practice on each part before proceeding to the next step. And so this can be done by myself asking questions and hoping for a choral response, um, which is the whole class responding, a written response, partner um, talk, or even individual responses. So constantly checking for those understandings allows you to then know where the students are at to know whether you can move on or you need to do a little bit more on this before moving on to the next part. This might be a good time to tell our listeners that prior to observing your lesson we talked about how many times students might be engaged. I counted over 127 responses from students in 11 and a half minutes. Just wow that's amazing. This was a combination of choral responses, partner work, whiteboard work, and individual responses. To see so much engagement in a variety of ways in such a short amount of time was unheard of before. That's fantastic. Yeah, well, that brings me to one of my other goals, which I like to work on, is developing fluency and speed within the children um, in those 
check for understanding. So by providing extensive independent practice, um, this allows children's skills and knowledge to become automatic. So we're building automaticity. So I need to fully prepare students for independent practice by making sure I am hitting that 100 responses in 10 minutes, which is great that I hit over that. Yes, clap for Amy. Um, <laughs> so the, really the only way to achieve that is by asking a large number of questions over and over and over to develop fluency and speed. And of obviously with those daily reviews, when you're um, constantly, say, doing the same sort of um, structure and activity with different words or different sounds, etc. Um, they really build that automaticity in what's expected of them. So with all of this, all of these responses, you're going to have to be constantly monitoring this to see which ones need to be retaught or which ones the students are understanding. Absolutely. But what that also means is I need to be on my toes and making sure I'm developing speed in checking for those um, understandings and monitoring. So I need to make sure that um, when students are responding on the boards or they're having their partner shares, that I'm roaming the room and can see all whiteboards um, to make sure that they are not practicing errors. So I'm checking that they fully understand what's been asked of them. Um, and the key for me to be able to do that and get through everyone is by asking a large number of questions in a single lesson um, to ensure I can keep checking that they're not developing and practicing misconceptions. So my eyes have to be on as well as theirs. You know, you mentioned before that um, there was partner work there. And one of the things that I noticed when I came in is that when you said turn and talk to your partner, they knew who to talk to. I mean, I've done that before as well in, my, in some of my lessons in the past. And um, some of the students will get in a group of three, someone won't know who to talk to. Your students just turned and talked and had a discussion. They knew how to take turns as well. How did, how did you make this happen? So I have sit spots on my floor where the children sit in front of the interactive board and I purposefully place children every two to three weeks in a on a sit spot. First of all, I really think about what person I am sitting them next to. So I need to make sure they're next to somebody who they will um, focus well with, but also putting children together who wouldn't normally talk to each other, say, within the classroom or on the playground. And I move them around regularly to make sure that children are exposed to a number of different children and their thoughts and their learning. And so what I do is there's certain rows that will turn towards each other. So children know, for example, when they're in the right row, they turn to the right. And if they're in the second row, they'll turn to the left. So children know this. Um, and when I change their sit spots up, I would never just expect they know who to turn to. So before starting a lesson, I would say, okay, before we start this lesson, we are going to practice turning to who our partner is so you know exactly who your partner is for this lesson. And then I'd say, okay, these two rows, you turn this way. These two rows, you turn this way. Um, but what's also really important, Luke, is, you know, often you will have children away um, and then you have blank spaces within your sit spots. So before every lesson, it's important that every sit spot is, is filled up so that students know 
and have somebody to turn to. And then if there's not an even number, we discuss, okay, today, one, two, three, you're going to be a group of three. Here is how you will turn to each other. And because I have set up this culture of learning in the classroom, there's no groaning, there's no, oh, I have to move. Children will just automatically do it. And because they are moved around so much to be with different partners, they they don't say, oh, I don't want to be with this person or, oh, I'm with this person again, because they know in another two weeks they're going to be with someone completely different. So this is a, one of the routines you've set up in your class. And I noticed that also when I was observing that everyone was watching, everyone was engaged, there was no behaviour management that was that you had to sort of draw upon either. Um, is this some of the thing? did you teach behaviour management in this instance or um, how, how did you make this happen? Absolutely. So just, I like to think about it. If you're introducing something new to the class, you need to teach those behaviors and the expectation that you want in your classroom, just like it's the beginning of the year and you have a whole bunch of new students. So first of all, I need to prepare children for what is coming. So let's say I'm doing a daily review and there's new content or like a new game or activity or strategy that I want to do, I would never just put that up on the screen and expect children to know what to do because I feel like when children don't know what they're doing, that's when you have behavioral disruptions. So before the lesson or the review, I would say, okay, boys and girls, today we have a new activity. It's going to be on this slide. Here is how you engage with it. And then so when they come to that slide, I don't have to pause the high pace speed lesson to then explain it, which is where you're going to get the disruptions happening. So at the beginning, I say, this is how we do this. When it comes up on slide 25, you'll know exactly what to do because they know the expectation. They're not going to lose engagement and I'm not going to have disturbances. Um, and then, you know, just at the beginning of the day, you would say, okay, boys and girls, today we're starting off with prayer. Then we are going to mark the roll. So you have your list. I think it's important at the beginning of every lesson to have your plan of what you are going to do in that lesson. So they also know um, what is what is um, expected of them. And there's a few steps, Luke. Sorry, I'm just <laughs> rambling on now to tell you because I feel like oh, great. managing great. behavior is really important with explicit teaching if you want to hit those marks. Um, another thing is just as if we were uh, asking children to line up in two lines and walk quietly throughout a school, we need to reinforce those behaviors regularly. So before um, each lesson on my slides, um, I state what is expected. So for example, some of these change, but for example, one I often use is to learn, I need to attend, to learn, I need to intend, to learn, I need to rehearse, and then I can retrieve. And students say that and know what that is. Um, and this has really allowed the children to have that mindset before they enter into the lesson. Um, and then on my slides, I think when I, and this is a learning curve for me, Luke, when I first started off doing explicit teaching and using the mini whiteboards, 
not only were mini whiteboards new for me, but also children. You had those children, you know, tapping their pen on the whiteboard, playing, you know, wanting to draw on the whiteboard because that's the coolest thing you could possibly do, like just not focusing. So on my slides, I'll have a sign of a whiteboard so students know when they need a whiteboard. And if they don't, they know there should be nothing in their hand. And some sometimes I'll say, uh, three, two, one, show me your hands. And so that means they have nothing in their hands knowing that the next slide they don't need their whiteboard for. So they knew what to do there. Like, did, how many, did you reinforce this over and over again or did they pick it up straight away? Well, what I would do is at the beginning when I was, when I first have a new class, obviously it takes a little bit to set them up with your expectations. We would practice that. So I would model the ideal behaviour and then I would, pretty much like an explicit lesson, I would model what was expected. They would tell me what was expected and then they would practice it. And if they don't do that, then we would stop and repeat it so that we're really setting them up for success in order to achieve the expectations of the lesson. So what I'm hearing from you is that for a successful lesson to happen, particularly when you have whiteboards and engagement and uh, of this type, particularly pair share, we to set the to have this run really well. We need to make sure we stick um, to these routines. If we let them go, we let them tap, we let them draw. We lose um, the lesson flow, and we lose. Um, we start having to use our behaviour management um, strategies. Is that correct? Absolutely, yes. And I have found that I've finally gotten to a point um, where. You- you don't need to use behavior management strategies if you have set them up for success by modeling those exact behaviors. So think about if you're a teacher and you're preparing for an assembly and one of those assembly items is you want children to recite a poem. You are going to have you're going to repeat that poem with them. You're going to go through that poem with them step by step. You might have some gestures that remind them of certain parts of that poem. It's the exact same with setting up the ideal behavior you want. You're showing them what you're looking for. You're showing them what you're not looking for. Not just telling them, they have to have a chance to practice it. They're not going to succeed the first time. They need to be able to practice it as well. And I think where you were saying there is, um, you know, you're, you're eliminating behavioral disruptions. I think that also comes about with, you have to build a culture of learning within your classroom and especially for explicit and daily reviews. And by building a culture of learning, what I mean is that children respect everyone as a learner and children respect me as a teacher. And so we have done this in my class to um, make sure that children understand the importance of learning and not disrupting other people from their learning. So they know ticking their um, marker on a whiteboard is going to disrupt someone else's learning, even though if it's not disrupting theirs. So we're encouraging positive relationships between students. Um, And another way we do this to build the whole culture of learning is in my class, I want children to respect everyone as a learner. So that means um, even little simple strategies of if a child is responding 
independently, verbally. Um, I'll give an action, say, once they've got it correct. And, you know, for example, a love heart symbol with my hands and children will all repeat, I love it. Or if um, they've done it right, I might have a thumbs up and the children will say, you got it. Or um, if I show like a lasso thing, children will say, yeehaw. And this is them um, praising other children and building that culture of learning. That's fantastic. That's great to hear those sort of little tips. If you had um, some advice to other teachers that might be having difficulty managing behaviour and students might be calling out or students might be tapping on their whiteboards or being distracted, distraction, what, how would you sum, it up, sum that up in a few sentences about what, what sort of advice would you give teachers that are struggling in that area? Okay, my first advice I would say is what we, first of all, what we need to do, if that is what is happening, often children don't understand that their actions can influence the learning of other children or also the teaching of the teacher. So I feel 100% behavioural disruptions are all about children not understanding respect. So we need to teach children how to be a respectful learner by doing, you know, by saying those words to them. You are tapping your pencil and that can be disruptive for somebody else. Or I am trying to teach so your voice needs to be off so everyone in the class can learn. And put not, not saying stop that or you're being really annoying by tapping your marker. Explain the behaviour that they are doing and what the result of that behaviour might be for other children or the teacher. I noticed that also you had a few phrases that you like to use to get attention and because they might be talking to someone else. What are some of your favourite um, attention signals that you like to, to Sure. Use? One thing I'd like to say first look about attention signals is that you have to find an attention signal that children love as well so that they want to respond with that signal. So um, one I use, which... Um, every child loves is red and green face the screen and what this means is if they are in the middle of a partner talk obviously I get them to turn their whole body to face that partner out of a sign of respect so they're not just turning their head to talk to their partner they're moving their whole body so that their whole focus is on their partner, which means when I need them to face the screen again, they need to completely 180 turn their body around. So I'll say red and green, and then the children will say face the screen, and it's almost like a little race. They try to see who can be the fastest person to quickly face the screen again, and it keeps that fast-paced environment up. Some of these attention signals, they sort of lose their their effect sometimes um, I've noticed and what do you do to maintain that um, in your classroom? Okay well for example with the red and green face the screen I think the reason it has never gotten old is because it like I said it is like a race you need to make these enjoyable for the students so they want to be the first student to turn around and I will give things like, whoa, that was so fast. Or I will say, Harry, well done. That was super speed. And then, you know, people are like, oh, Harry did that really fast that time. I need to be faster than Harry next time. So almost making it like a challenge. Do you have another one that you, you can share with us? 
Yeah, absolutely. I've got a couple more. Um, one of them I say when children are responding individually on their whiteboards for a check for understanding, um, if I can see they are, you know, taking their time, which isn't often, but I like to say it anyway, I'll say, boys and girls, I want fast writing, not neat writing. And this is to keep up the fast pace engagement of the lesson and to make sure that they are held accountable because they know I'm not giving them a lot of time for them to then flip that whiteboard. Um, so they want to be fast at writing. And what happens if, if students um, don't have anything on their whiteboard or have trouble thinking of an answer? Luke, I will say this straight up. A child in my class can possibly, I will say, can possibly not have any reason to not even have anything on their whiteboard because I am not asking them a question that we have, that I have just not taught them, that we have not repeated as a class, that they have not spoke about with their partner. And then it is finally their turn to write. So that structure is completely eliminating anxiety of, I have no idea what to write. Um, but what I will say is, you know, starting out with these things, you might have that child who every time in that time frame you give them might write one response, one word. And then I will just say three, two, one, chin it, three, two, one, flip it. I'm giving them a very fast time frame. I don't need to point out to them and say, oh, Sarah, you only got one word then. I would never say that. But Sarah then knows if she can see on other people's boards or when we're sharing that they've got five words, that is her own um, motivation, intrinsic motivation to write more next time. And you will always see those children writing faster, writing more because it's an intrinsic, it, it encourages intrinsic motivation as, as opposed to extrinsic motivation. You said you had one final one that you could share with us. Yep. So this also comes down to um, the structure of the lesson, but also the behavior and expectation you want in your classroom. Um, and that is I use hand gestures. So children know exactly what is expected. So I've got my turn, our turn, your turn. So for my turn, children know that when my hand is raised next to my face, my right hand, that it is my turn to speak, that their voices are off and that they are listening. So it is my turn. Then when it is our turn, I will take my, that hand that was up near, raised near my face, and I will gesture it out towards all children in the class. So kind of like making a flat rainbow from left to right, encouraging all children. And that means it is our turn, which means the children and myself will review the learning and repeat the learning. And then when I put my hand out to the children as though I am asking them to pass me something, like as if I was saying, pass me that eraser, uh, they know that that is your turn, which means individually their turn to repeat something on the board or to read something on the board without my help. So that is another um, one of my favorite atten um, attention signals, but also expectations in the class. You've talked about how students know what's going on in your lesson and know that um, learning's happening and you know that learning's happening. You're verifying that students are learning while you're teaching. Are you able to outline the um, TAPL approach that you're using um, in your class? Sure, absolutely. So 
when we first, when I first started learning about explicit teaching, Luke, this TAPL strategy was completely new to me as well. Um, and I honestly think it is the best structure to have in any lesson. So TAPL are the steps that a teacher would use to continuously check for understanding. And it's a structure in which steps are explicitly presented um, before checking for understanding to make sure that students have understood what is being taught. So um, adjusting to TAPL has been extremely um, easy. I know we touched on this before, but the first stage in TAPL is to teach first. So I would never ask a question unless I had already taught the content in that lesson. So not a lesson from two days ago, not even a lesson from two hours ago. Um, and so, like I said, this was an adjustment that has been very easy because the benefits speak for themselves. So previously, you know, you might say, who remembers what we discussed yesterday? That doesn't happen. That's the first part of the T for TAPL. Then I would ask a question. Um, so I would ask a question about what was just taught. So like I said, not what was taught in a previous lesson or a review and the answer remains on the board. And I asked the question after the I do, we do, you do structure. Um, the first P in TAPL is representing a pause and a pair share, which is we've touched on as well, one of my favourite things. So students will share their answers to a posed question with their partner um, and I truly find this an important and valuable cognitive strategy because it is promoting student listening and speaking skills. It promotes students talking to other children in the class who they might not necessarily discuss their learning with um, at any other time. Um, but also children are held accountable. Like they have to tell their partner something because they know with the next step, which is pick a non-volunteer, that they could be chosen to answer the question. And so that um, second P, pick a non-volunteer, I would choose at least three um, with my paddle pop stick. So I've got a jar that has paddle pop sticks with each child's name in it. And I pull it out and I might say, uh, Luke, and then ask him the question. But Luke, now the trick is you've got to put your paddle pop stick back into the jar because you could be chosen again. And it would not matter if you were chosen those three times, you would still have to have something to share and it makes sure children aren't just switching off once they think their paddle pop stick has been has been chosen. So when you're asking a question, you're not getting an answer straight away. You're getting, letting them pair share first. Absolutely. Allowing them to have that cognitive thinking time. Not only that, Luke, but the question I have asked, the answer or part of the answer or the learning in order to answer that question remains on the board. So students don't have to remember it. If they're turning to their partner to discuss it, they can still look to the board for the learning that just occurred in order to answer that question. Yeah. And then L in TAPL um, is obviously listen to the response. So that's just the children responsing, sorry, responsing, responding, which is allowing me to offer feedback and to check for understanding. And then with the E, they kind of relate together. That's effective feedback. So um, elaborating, explaining or reteaching. So 
I would always say if a child has answered, and I touched on this before, I might, and I can see that it is correct instantly and I don't have to reteach, I would show the students, say, example, a love heart um, symbol with my hands and they would, all the class know, they say, I love it. And then I would, I would elaborate on why that answer was right. So, for example, I might say, so that's right, Matthew. AI is a digraph because it is two letters that make one sound. Those two letters make the sound A. So that if another child, not that I think would happen, like I've said, it's a no failure way of teaching. But if another child in the class is thinking, why is that answer correct? Why have we just said, I love it? I will then elaborate why that answer was correct. Amy, it's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you today. And I'm sure that our listeners are gaining lots of valuable tips and um, strategies that they can use in their own classroom. Thank you, Luke. It has been wonderful. I would just like to say that this is the best model of teaching I have ever used. So I have been very great i feel very grateful to come on and talk about this and promote it and like i said before when you're in your classroom and you are standing up there and you have children chanting at you and giving you their undivided um, attention and all of their respect it is honestly such a rewarding um, feeling as a teacher because you also know you are hitting those knowledge and skill targets that you are hoping the children to achieve Thanks for joining us on Teacher Insights. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite platform so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in learning more about Catalyst, check out the website catalyst.cg.catholic.edu.au. Till next time, keep learning.